Hi, welcome to Offscript. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Today on the show, we'll be talking about the Corey Finley film Thoroughbreds, the uh, indie black comedy, and the Aver du- Aver, Ava DuVernay, I think I got that right, Disney picture, A Wrinkle in Time. But first, the news. Let's get started. Kristen Wiig will star in Wonder Woman sequel as the Cheetah, director confirms. For anybody who doesn't know, we talked about this last week when it was just a rumor. And really, we just wanted to revisit to say, um, you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> we were right. We, we were right. Uh, for all your on-topic on movie news, uh, for all of the truth, tune into Offscript every week. <laughs> the, home, the home of bold cinema. Right. We wanted to use our, our news platform to let everybody know uh, that we're vindicated, we're correct, and uh, moving right along to the actual news. Yes. Uh, actress Taylor Hickson sues producers over disfiguring injury. Taylor Hickson uh, suffered a gruesome facial injury when she crashed through a glass door while filming the indie horror pick Ghostland in Canada. For anybody who doesn't know Taylor Hickson, Andy, I'm going to put you on the spot. What else has she been in? I don't know. I haven't. I, don't know. I haven't looked her up. So. But that's not. That's not what's important. Uh, what's important is this story. This relates to the Uma Thurman, Uma Thurman story from a few weeks back, talking about her getting an injury on the set of Kill Bill Volume Two. And we just want to bring this up because one, it's actually a pretty disfiguring injury. If you take a look at some pics, it's um, it's a bummer, man. It really is. And uh, she she was injured in in a situation which. She was, like I said, pounding on a glass door for a scene, and the director and producer both told her um, to, to kind of do it harder, keep going, and she said, wait, 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 I'm, I'm worried, like, it's going to break, uh, and they were both, nope, it's fine, it, it'll be fine, it's not going to break, it's fine. Sure enough, she's pounding on this thing, glass breaks, scars her face, here she is. Um, it's a bummer, because for an actor, their face is kind of their thing, you know? Yeah, exactly. It's it's a huge part of, of the gig, is, right. is your appearance. Taylor Hickson is a young woman. Uh, she, I'm sure, has a career ahead of her in acting, but this is definitely a setback. I mean, you can look at some pictures of, like, after the fact, the scar. Like, it's rough, man. Yes. It, does, it, doesn't, it doesn't look that good. Yeah, so just to describe it, it so it's about an 8-inch gash in her face, and it's it goes from her chin, like, to her cheekbone. And, like, I've seen a picture of her when she first got to the hospital, and, I mean, it's like... It looks like a war wound, and, and she says that the one of the women that was on set was literally holding her face together with like a bunch of napkins because it was just like a ton of blood and just like her half her face was falling off. Right. So, this was her. This was her last day on set, and this happens. Like, just I know we talked about it with the Uma Thurman bit, but like, is there any kind of recourse here for watching out for actors when they're doing stunts like this? Well, I mean, I, I think just the people that are in charge should know better. They they know it's it's up to them to keep the actors safe, and they should mm-hmm. know what those limits are. And yeah, they could have made sure they had I don't know better glass that was safe to break, or maybe even had a stunt double or something. Right. So she's also suing for mental distress, uh, which, to be fair, again, this is kind of your whole career, you know. And when, when something like this happens, I could see her being upset. Um, I don't, I don't really know if there, if there's a good, a good ending to this story, other, other than we felt like it was important to point out because um, this is something that is seemingly ever present. Right. Really. It's another example of a director essentially putting an, an actor in harm's way. Mm-hmm. With uh, you know lifelong repercussions, so she's she's had some uh, plastic surgery and done some laser treatment, and so it's made the scar you know smaller, but it's still I mean it's like eight inches, and it she required seventy stitches, so there's yeah. o- there's only so much you can do to cover that up. Right. The official statement says it is unknown at this time if any further treatment, including plastic surgery, will reduce the visual appearance of the injury. So this is pretty much where she's at. Um, this is a young actress who, I mean, is doing doing an indie flick, trying to trying to get somewhere, and this happens. It's it's frightening because you don't. This is a story we're hearing about. But you don't hear about all the stories where this doesn't. You don't hear about. You know what I mean? Like this could have happened to plenty of other people before, and it's like, well, that's the business, I guess. Uh, it's messed up. It's messed up that acting has to be kind of a dangerous thing, and I think it can be. It can be skewed because acting, like many things in Hollywood, is so endearing, and so many people think, "Well, you know, you gotta, you gotta do the scene, you the gotta sacrifice your for your sure. art." And you look at you look at actors, not to put assign blame or anything, but actors who are particularly method. This reminds me of that scene in Nightcrawler where Jake Gyllenhaal breaks a, a mirror, 
Um, it's, it's an incredible scene. And, and I think to pursue a level of depth in a performance like that, oftentimes people can lose track of reality and, and, and what is safe and what isn't. It can put, it can put individuals in harm's way and it's not okay. Um, I, I can appreciate, you know, wanting to, wanting to, to, to get the, to get the scene right, to get, to get the right take, um, to get something that's emotionally charged, but like at, at what cost, I guess, I mean, come on, is, is ghost land really worth this happening to this woman? Like, of course not. Yeah. Well, like any movie would be worth this. And just like the Uma Thurman case where, you know, it's a film. So there are cameras rolling, like there is footage of what happened somewhere, you know, and mm-hmm. maybe that'll be released, uh, one day. Who knows? Right. So that being said, I suppose we should move on to our next story. But a bummer for Taylor Hickson. We're pulling for her. the next story. And Andy, you're going to have to help me get through this one. The Wolf of Wall Street producer ordered to pay $60 million in corruption case. The Wolf of Wall Street, a Martin Scorsese film, of course, about a little financial finagling with Jordan Belfort, who played by Leonardo DiCaprio. It turns out they've run into some actual issues about financial finagling, finagling. Uh, so... <laughs> Again, I, Andy, you've read between the lines on this. Help me break this down. What, what is this? Okay, so this this is this story came up uh, a while ago, um, where they were first kind of being sued. And what happened is that there was this big fund in Malaysia, this multi billion dollar fund um, that was mismanaged and was used to spend money on uh, just luxury items, cars, real estate, and part of that money went to f- fund a production studio called Red Granite. Red Granite then went on to fund the Wolf of Wall Street. And so uh, the the U.S. officials are the ones who brought the lawsuit against Malaysia. And so they're the ones who said that Red Granite has to pay $60 million in fees and fines. Um, because essentially the misuse of this much larger monetary Malaysian fund. Right. So they were using federal funds to make movies some yeah something strange like that I, and I, I don't know like the details of this i mean because we're talking like it's like two or three billion dollars worth of this massive fund and part of it was uh for the red granite um production studio uh but what's interesting about this also is that uh now Leo, leonardo dicaprio has done nothing wrong he's not been charged or implicated in anything but however he did have to return a couple of items that were gifted to him by Red Granite. He he, yeah. was, he was gifted two paintings and an Oscar, and, and not just any Oscar. It was a Marlo Marlon Brando's uh, Oscar from On the Waterfront that he was gifted right. to. So he had to re- he returned all these items. And as soon as this story broke several months ago, he returned all those items. So he was wouldn't you know? So he's not you know implicated in, in anything. Right, these gifts were bought with stolen money. That's why he had to return them. Essentially, right. Um, you know what's interesting about this? I mean, well, what really pops in this story, besides, of course, the convenience of it being around a movie called The Wolf of Wall Street, um, Red Granite was awfully tangled up with Paramount, who did not have a great year last year. <laughs> Paramount's biggest movie was Transformers Five. Uh, so, and which isn't to say they didn't put out good movies. They did. Uh, just you know, they didn't do particularly well um so i guess like man when it rains it pours huh paramount like this one this one's a tough one for them because what are you gonna do like it's not their fault per se it's not leonardo dicaprio's fault that this happened but uh it's it's a bummer that they have to kind of uh, in a way be reprimanded for it indirectly i guess yeah and there's some other properties that they red granite owns um daddy's home uh, they funded that and some other films as well. So they have, again, but they're having to pay these, these fines based on the profits from these other films. You know, there's there's a part of me, and, this, and I'm going to explain why I feel this way. There's a part of me that thinks this is really cool. And I'll, and I'll tell you why. Because I, I remember being in, in, in film school and them talking about how you have to get proper citations to go out and film in places. And if you want to go film in a national park, you have to get that approved by the park people. You can't just roll out there on a Saturday and film and people will be cool with it. They'll kick you out. So with that understanding, there is an element of like guerrilla filmmaking that takes place in a lot of movies and a lot of shots. Oftentimes you don't see them, but for example, uh, the movie Black Swan, if you remember that movie, Darren Aronofsky, part of that movie, um, a, a couple of scenes are shot on a, on the subway. Um, they didn't get any kind of like approval for that. They they took like a couple DSLRs and went on the subway and just shot it one night at like two in the morning. And there you go. You got your movie. 
And there's something like inherently awesome to me about that, about being able to be like, F the rules, man. Like we're, we're making movies. Like we don't yeah. need it. You know, yeah. we're going to, it's going to be great. And, and uh, oddly enough, part of that kind of uh, logic is present in a movie like the Wolf of Wall Street. But yeah, like the, the, the gorilla filmmaker in me thinks this is rad, man. Like, you know, it's federal funds. Who needs it? We're making movies. <laughs> like we're making magic on screen. But yeah, realistically, like it's, it's definitely not cool to get caught and it's definitely not cool to do it in the first place. So I'm, I, I admire it, I guess is what I'm saying. I, I respect the process. And I respect <laughs> that they were like, we're making movies with this. Like, that's cool. Um, but that being said, you probably shouldn't have done that. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, that's what I, it, I always say. If I, you know, if I ever win the lottery, you know, I'm going to start a production studio and I'm going to start making movies too. So... Um, I <laughs> yeah. could, uh, someone else had that, had that film bug and, and decided to run with it. Right. If I ever, uh, get a $3 billion bailout from the government, I'll consider <laughs> opening up a studio. Call it blue granite. The next story, uh, Alamo draft house video store to let you rent any movie for free for anybody who saw this this week and thought, man, I hope the guys on off script talk about it. Here we are. <laughs> uh, recently cinema chain Alamo draft house made headlines by announcing they were opening a brick and mortar venture out in North Carolina, of all places, that was seemingly right out of the 1980s, a video rental store. What's interesting about this isn't that they're opening a video rental store. Well, that is interesting. But also, uh, every single movie will be, will be available to rent for free. They're planning a 75,000 uh, film library, and they're they're renting them out for free. You can just come and pick it up and you're on your way. The store will be called Video Vortex, opening in Rally. It's set to start construction sometime this year. Andy... You want to take this one? Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah, it seems very retro. And, like, what are you doing in the age of stores shutting down? Like, I was just reading this week that Toys R Us is closing all its stores or possibly closing all its stores. Um, and you have them building a brick-and-mortar store. But the uh, what they're doing that's different is that, again, they're the movies are for free. And the reason that is is they actually have this huge stockpile of films they're just, they're just sitting in a wet warehouse, so they're not making money anyways. Um, so they're going to put it in this venue, but the idea is more to create a cinema hangout almost because there's going to be food and a bar and like tabletop games. You know, it reminds me of uh, there's an arcade bar that, that's close to where I live, and they have these same kind of things. They have a bunch of retro games, but they also they do tournaments and they have console games you can play and board games and food and and and, and beer. So it's it's a gathering. It's about like it's a social thing. Mm -hmm. So it looks like that's what they're trying to maybe create uh, that almost like a video bar, essentially. Right. And it looks like, yeah, reading into this article, they they're looking to rent more than just movies uh, for movies they have on VHS. They'll rent you a VHS player. For movies they have on Blu-ray, you can rent a Blu-ray player. And they started this idea, Video Vortex, in Austin doing screenings for movies that were like direct to film, usually indie stuff made out in Austin. And so they're kind of expanding it into a full rental store out in North Carolina. I don't know why North Carolina, of all places. I guess I'm just jealous it's not here. Um, but uh, it'll be interesting to see where exactly they can get with this. I, I like the idea of having a place where people can hang out and talk about movies. But I think they might be overlooking the fact that the reason places like Blockbuster and Hollywood Video aren't around anymore is because all people did was hang out and talk about movies. Like, nobody actually bought anything, you know? So, right. But maybe that's what they're counting on. Like, they, right. You're going to come in and hang out, talk talk movies, and, you know, buy food and, and beer and what what else? Sure. Well... I don't know, man. Yeah, I, I would love to support something like this, but I think about if we had one of these like just up the road here, yeah, I'd probably go and get a couple movies, but I'd go down the street and get a six-pack. Like, why would I pay for overpriced beer at this place when I could just buy it cheaper somewhere else? Like, I, I, as much as I'm all about supporting local business, um, it's so easy to take advantage of. I worry people might. But it does sound like a it could create a really cool atmosphere for people to kind of get in and get involved with what's going on. And personally, I love the idea of a 75,000 film title library. Like that's, it's like a cinephile's dream, right? Yeah. See, there, there's, I have a checklist of, of like cinema related things I want to visit. Then now this would definitely be one. And the other one is secret cinema in, which is in England. So that, that one's going to be more difficult, but, um, 
But I'm going to add this to the list. I'd love to to make a trip out there and see what it's all about. If anybody does, yeah, if you happen to make it out there in North Carolina and you get to check this out, please let us know. When it when it's built, of course, they're still working on construction and whatnot, and then kind of working out where they're going to have it. But when it's put together, if you make it out there before us, email us at mail at offscriptfilmreview.com. Please let us know what this is about. Come on the show and talk about it. Like, I, I yeah, I really want to get, get into this. Um, if I'm ever out in North Carolina, I'll have to check it out myself. But our next story, David Chase revives The Sopranos with New Line prequel movie, The Many Saints of Newark. David Chase, The Sopranos, HBO. Andy, have you seen any of these things? Yeah, I've watched The Sopranos twice. It's the only show I think I've watched twice all the way through. Nice. I tried to watch it a few years ago, and the accents are so god-awful in the first first season that i barely made it into season two before i was like i'm just gonna go back to watching breaking bad and bailed <laughs> um not that it's bad i i because I, I, I a lot of people really strung me up for that i was like no no no. i'm not saying the sopranos is bad i'm saying you have to be I, at the right place in your life for the sopranos that's my <laughs> argument and i just wasn't there yet and i'm like someday i'll go back and be really into it um there are parts of it i really liked but I kind of just fell off at some point and never got back on. That being, I, I do know it is like it has some rabid fans. Like The Sopranos is a cult following, like few shows do. Yeah, so it it's a lot of times touted as the best, if or one definitely one of the best shows ever written. It's up there with. I mean, it reminds me a lot of things like Breaking Bad, uh, more recent. You know in that genre. Uh, sure, the wire. It, yeah. yeah. But it was so groundbreaking because it, I mean, we're talking 1999. Now we're spoiled in an age of really great TV, but in 1999, there was nothing quite like this. And, you know, it's incredibly brutal. There's lots of violence. There's lots of sexual sexuality. Um, and it, it's really in-depth character because it essentially, it ha- you have these tough mob mobsters, but you know, the main character, Tony Soprano, it's about him going to see a shrink. Uh, which is something that they just you know wouldn't have done. So it it brings up the the topic of mental health uh, quite a lot. But what's interesting about this as a prequel is that the series has lots of flashbacks to younger to to the sixties when which is when they plan to make it take place. Um, w- when a lot of the older characters like the father and the uncles and you know the old the old guard essentially when they were young. Uh, there's so there's lots of flashbacks, lots of references. Uh, to that Uh, and so that's what this uh, film looks like it's going to cover right and i i think the sopranos is is really it really is something special because there are scenes i've seen from the sopranos both in context and out um that are chilling and and legitimately hard to watch (laughs) there's there's a couple scenes from the sopranos i've seen before i'm like i don't ever want to watch that again and it kept me up at night um it's it's nuts and it is really gripping television I'll be interested to see how David Chase revisits this old property and tackles it from a different angle in a period piece fashion. I'll be interested to see if he's informed by shows like The Mad Men, which did the 60s already, following in the wake of something like The Sopranos, and how he kind of approaches um, this older property uh, in light of where we are now and what we've seen. The Sopranos was edgy when it came out. It was different. This is now a world that's informed by that. We are past The Sopranos, and we expect more. And it sounds like when you're approaching it from the 60s, you, you might be giving us less. So I don't really know what to expect. Um, what, are you, what are you hoping for, really? I mean, it, there's a lot of really colorful characters as part of what the show's known for. Um, you know, uh, his fa- uh, Tony's father, uh, Junior Soprano, his, his uncle, his mother... Lots of people. There's in the show they did the thing where people were constantly getting out of prison, which was I th- I felt like a cheap way to bring on new characters. Um, mm. But but a lot of those characters are good, and you could see them the, their younger selves, and maybe see how they ended up uh, in there. There's one character, Phil Leotardo. All he says is as he talks about is how long he spent in the in jail, and he's always just like twenty years, twenty years. <laughs> I did like every episode. It's twenty years. Yeah, sure. Um, I, you know, this is going to be like the, the Malaysia thing. There's a part of me that of course wants this movie to be awesome and wants every Sopranos fan who's displeased by the ending to feel vindicated and that they've gotten something more. The other part of me like totally hopes this is a flop because (laughs) 
I, I'm one of those people, having not watched the whole series and seen through the ending, I, I've heard so many conversations about the ending and what it means, and I I am I, I like I enjoy being in the camp of um David Chase didn't know how to end his series. It yeah. wasn't intentional. He didn't know what to do. He fell apart at the end, and this is his his bland attempt at at redeeming himself. And then part of me hopes it's a complete flop, and we can all laugh off how David Chase caught lightning in a bottle with the Sopranos and move on. Um, but See, if I'm wrong, if it's brilliant, then uh, more power to him, I guess. I, I so, think yeah. it could be really interesting. Um, that being said, uh, to me, the ending is bad. Like, there's, it doesn't matter. Like, it's very ambiguous, and people say, well, maybe A happened, or maybe B happened, or maybe C happened. To me, it doesn't matter. Like, it's it's all bad. It doesn't matter which one you choose to go with. Like, it was just a poor ending, and you're exactly right. I felt like he didn't know how to uh, end the series. Right. It's like if they were going to make a prequel movie to, like, Lost. I'd be like, I don't care. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Obviously, Lost and Sopranos aren't the same, but... There's a certain something there to one of the series that's been most acclaimed in television history, and this isn't a television podcast, so I don't want to get too hung up on this, but having a series like that, having such an ambiguous ending that is so hotly debated by fans, to him finally revisiting that with a prequel. (laughs) Yeah. And I get it. James Gandolfini isn't around anymore. What are you going to do? CGI him in? Like, I get you can't make a sequel (laughs) to Sopranos. Um but it really is like to every fan who always who argued and wanted to know what would happen. Like this can't possibly be any kind of redemption for you. It's got to be a little frustrating that the guy who never said either way, who never came out and gave a definitive answer, is saying not only am I not going to answer that, but I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna take your love for this series and make you pay the price of admission for a story that takes place 40 years earlier. How do you like me now? Like I don't know. Like I. I <laughs> Well, yeah, who needs it? I, I, I don't really have anything else no, to say I, about it. But as, uh, as, a, as a Sopranos fan, I'm excited for it because, like I said, in the series, there is a lot of flashback and a lot of what happens in, like, Tony's childhood that, that's important. So it, it'd be nice to kind of see it all be more cohesive because, you again, you, there's lots of flashbacks throughout the series. Right, and I didn't really get to a lot of those. Um, there There's a handful of flashbacks in season one, but for the most part, it's kind of it's, – it's pretty – they were still figuring it out, you know, so I, I, I don't know. But I do need to revisit The Sopranos. Again, this is not a television podcast, so we won't talk too much about it. This also isn't a book podcast, which is going to make this next review a little challenging, but I'm hoping I don't completely flub it. Uh, the next review is our kind of main review this week, and I, I still think we should have done this one second, but let's kick it off with A Wrinkle in Time. Be a warrior. I'll try. After the disappearance of her scientist father, three peculiar beings send frustrated teenage rebel Meg, her child genius younger brother Charles Wallace, and her too-cool-for-school popular friend Calvin on a fantastic adventure through space and time in order to find him. Along the way, they encounter a variety of alien life, including the It, a bodiless telepathic being that embodies all of the darkness of the universe and must use the powers of light to defeat the darkness, save their father, and return to Earth. A Wrinkle in Time is, of course, based on the 1962 book by Madeline LaEngle that is 54 years old, and it aged great. Andy, you didn't see A Wrinkle in Time. I did. So (laughs) do you have any thoughts before I just spring right into my review? Okay. So I saw the the trailer. I have not read the book, uh, but I rewatched the the trailer uh, earlier, and... The first one, it looked actually pretty kind of captivating. Uh, looks like it has really cool visual effects. Um, it did. The plot does seem kind of generic with like, there is this dark spreading, we must fight it with the light. Uh, but, I mean, it looked visually impressive. Well, you, you're pretty much right. Um, the visual effects are pretty good. And, and I say that because there's a lot of them. And, and before I dig too far into the look of the movie, I should talk about the plot. I, I really struggled with how to review this. Um, I thought a lot about it because, again, this isn't a book podcast, and I don't want to spend too much time dwelling on a movie based on a book because I, you know, it's it's a book, and I don't I don't want to review a sixty two year old or fifty four year old novel written in nineteen sixty two. But I think it's important to understand where this movie succeeds and where it kind of falters. Um, this movie has a lot of heart; it really does. It's very ambitious. Um, 
but it doesn't quite make the mark. And I think its biggest problems are in trying to combine this older story with a new approach because it's exactly what this is. Uh, this is a very old story told through a lens of modernity. It's uh, rather than having these, these three characters, um, the three kind of main kids, Meg and Charlie, sorry, Meg, Charles Wallace, Charlie would have been a clever name, Charles Wallace, and Calvin um, be what I would presume to be, and I, please don't, please don't freak out and give a support <laughs> rating on iTunes for this. What I would presume to be three white kids in 1962 is now told from the perspective of a 13-year-old African-American girl, a five-year-old Asian boy, and a, I want to say 13 or 14-year-old Caucasian male, okay? A lot of diversity in here. And this is one of those cases where, like, I'm glad there's diversity in movies. I'm glad this is something worth exploring. I'm glad it wasn't just like, we're just casting, you know, three Caucasian kids. Like, I appreciate that we have that. In the three kind of celestial being characters that lead them around, we have the same thing. Uh, we have Oprah, uh, Mindy Colling, and Reese Witherspoon are the three witches. Um, so there's certainly some diversity there, and I can get behind that, and that's good. Um, but it feels a little expository. Like, I, I, I can't tell if it was like, this is the way we need to tell this story, and this is the only way we think we can tell it. Or, yep, checked off the gender diversity checkbox, nobody on the internet's going to freak out, let's move on. Like, and it felt a little bit like the latter. It just felt like they were doing it because they were, like, told to. Right. And not because like this is the way that the story should be told. But that being said, there are definitely some elements of of culture in this movie that weren't present in the first book, and I or in the book, and I enjoyed that. Ava DuVernay, Ava DuVernay, God, I'm struggling with that. She directed Selma, if you remember that movie, and it it shows here, and, and I think that's important because it adds a layer to this movie that wasn't there before. It adds a layer of kind of race and gender identification that are important. Um, and it makes it a more, it's easier to connect to because it's so much more like a modern trending topic versus what wasn't in the novel. Um, these characters kind of struggle a little bit with that and uh, it's engaging. The problem for me, the big one again is, is being tied to this very old story. The biggest issue being, for me, the, the one of the main kids, the five-year-old, is named Charles Wallace. Who, in 2018, is named Charles Wallace? It's absurd. Like, And there's characters in this movie that at certain points are like shouting for him in the woods, Charles Wallace! Like, Who says that? Like, the, the, <laughs> the, the, the actors can't even deliver it convincingly because it's not a realistic way to say something. And there's a handful of, of terms and quotes used in this movie that just feel out of place. Just outdated. In, yeah, in a contemporary setting. One of the things I thought was really funny, uh, one of the ways they kind of move around through space and time is through a thing called a tesser, which is based on a tesseract. And I was right. like, this is a Disney movie referencing a tesseract. And they say it like eight times. And all I could think was like, this is the, the Avengers? Because that's what I think of when you say the word tesseract. Like it's... it's our, 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 our cinematic society is informed by what we've seen. And you can't just throw around the term Tesseract in a Disney movie and not expect me to not think of the Avengers. Like, it's what it is. Right. It's the, or not, or not explain Tesseract. that it's like an actual, like a four-dimensional shape. Like. Right. Like, Reese Witherspoon's character acts like it's like a mysterious thing. And I'm like, mm, pretty much have an image in my head of what that is. So when you try to redefine it in your movie, like, it kind of hurts it. It doesn't help it, you know? And I, I think this movie... Let's move on to how it looked. It, it was very pretty. Um, but it's... It struggles because there's a lot of CGI. Very CGI heavy. Right. And a lot of it's like, you can only have so much CGI in a Disney movie before you're like, okay, I'm just looking at a bunch of CGI. Now, there are certain scenes which are really cool. If you remember the trailer, there's a scene where they show Chris Pine's character, the, ki the kid's father, the scientist's father, Alex Murray, who's been missing. That's who, that's who they're looking for. He, he's locked in some kind of cell. And it's, like, it's almost like something out of Blade Runner. It's really pretty. And it is the only room in that whole movie that looks as good as that does. Everything else looks normal and bland. They're outside. Nothing is particularly like incredible or it's just a bunch of CGI. Like that yeah. there, there's a there's a few key scenes which are really cool. And, and the way it's shot is really engaging as well. There's a lot of experimentation in this movie. There's a lot of like trying out shots or angles. And it's really cool. It's really well done. 
Um, there's also a lot of uh, extreme close-ups. A lot of extreme close-ups, which is weird. A lot of like close-ups on somebody's face so close you can't see the bottom of their chin or the top of their head. Really odd. A lot of them. It is like yeah, in the lens. Like, yeah, and I, I don't... There's really no reason for it. Um, there, there's things that... I think were, were probably cool conceptually when they when they put them on a storyboard, but then when they filmed them, they just looked kind of dumb, and they rolled with it anyway. I don't know if they didn't have budget to do anything about it or what, but it's. I guess what I'm saying is it's, it's very ambitious, but it just doesn't quite clear the mark. And as far as things that worked in the movie, because there were things that worked, I thought the performances were actually really well done. I did. Um, I thought it was pretty well directed. They were they were able to get Ava was able to get these child actors to be able to kind of get emotion across in a really, really connecting way. I thought Chris Pine was the best performance in the movie. Um, it's not because I'm particularly a Chris Pine fanboy. I just really thought he was the best part of it. Um, but the kids weren't too bad. You've got a five-year-old delivering dialogue here and it's pretty convincing. Um, pretty convincing. Um, I, I surprisingly enjoyed Oprah a lot. You wouldn't think she'd be awesome, but she was, um, I mean, I think she has been like Oscar nominated before. Yeah, I, I guess you're right. Yeah, <laughs> I th- that I sp- was going to be that one. Is of- true, right? As I say, I don't think I didn't think Oprah would be awesome. <laughs> I did. Uh, I was going to ask how how she was or how you thought she was. She was good, and the costuming was really incredible too. If you've seen the trailers, but I, I just there, there's definitely an element of like girl power to it, which is one of those things that just feels kind of misguided. I'm like, it feels like somebody who read the book and, and was like, yeah, female empowerment. And like, maybe that was in the book, but I read it in like sixth grade and I, I maybe, maybe it's cause I'm a dude, but like, I didn't get that at all. I was in like almost all of the songs in it are by female stars directed by women, by women. I don't know. It, it's, there's, there's definitely a lot of like girl power, but like, it's kind of, it doesn't really hit the mark. It's, it's like Meryl Streep's character in the post being a female character driving a newspaper, you would think they would push that more, but they kind of don't. And if they do, they miss it. Like it's kind of not there. Really the prevalent kind of thing here is family, but it should probably be um, overcoming adversity as a young adult because the main character is 13, but they don't really hit that either. Like it's just totally inconsistent. They don't, they don't really land anywhere particular. And it's frustrating personally, and this is getting into the book because I don't, I didn't, I didn't think the story was told from the correct perspective. In the same way, a lot of people said uh, Rage One or Star Wars Rogue One, for anybody who doesn't know, uh, should should have been told probably from Jin, from the perspective of Jyn Erso's father because it would have been more engaging and entertaining and direct. I felt the same way about this movie. Alex Murray, the, the scientist, goes missing. Probably should have been his story. Like, he loses his wife and kids. How does he get out of this situation? But it's not. Then you, you've got Meg, the main character, following around Charles Wallace, the five-year-old child genius, who everybody in the film <laughs> reveres as a genius, hands down. He is the, the smartest kid ever. One, I mean, one of, one of Reese Witherspoon's characters says at one point, like, he is one of the greatest minds in history, and nobody understands him because he's five. So this kid is already, like, on the biggest pedestal he could possibly be on. Maybe it should have been about him, but it's not. <laughs> Instead, it's about Meg, this this thirteen year old girl who is almost completely useless. And it's not <laughs> like I don't just say, I don't just say that because she is like characters in the movie agree on this. Reese Witherspoon's character calls her out on more than one occasion. Like, why is she here? She's useless. We don't need her. <laughs> She's slowing us down. So at some point in the movie, I'm like, yeah, why is she here? Like, that doesn't make any sense. Why Why am I trailing this girl? And then, of course, at the end of the movie, being a Disney kids flick, it, like, it all works out. It turns out everybody's great and happy. And like, that's, that's great. But like, it just, it didn't make any sense. And it's so much of it was like, well, you have to do it this way because that's the original story. And the fact is, the original story is 54 years old. Like, and nobody... It's just outdated. Yeah. Yeah. So I appreciate them trying to put a modern spin on it, but it just kind of misses the mark. It's ambitious. And I, I, I wanted to like it more than I did, but at the end of the day, a wrinkle in time is not great. (laughs) (laughs) So I I had a question. Um, Please. uh, As I I read, or I saw a headline that said um, that I guess they removed certain like religious imagery or 
topics that are in the book from the film and that that actually made it worse than if they had left them in. Right. Madeline Langle was kind of, she was, she was arguably like a young adult Christian author, similar to like C.S. Lewis, kind of like when he wrote Narnia. Um, So there was certainly kind of an element of that in the original story. And really in this movie, it's all about the light versus the dark. It's the good versus the bad. Um, And they, they express that through the it, which is the protagonist in the movie. Very original. I know. Um, almost as good as the name of the planet the it lives on, which is Kamazots, which sounds <laughs> just as stupid coming out of the characters' mouths on screen as it did just out of mine. Um, but the it is basically like fear and shame and anger and rage, and it's everything bad about humanity. That's the it, right? And everybody, everybody has that, but these warriors of light don't, and they're fighting that by being good people. That's that's the movie. Um, I don't know. It's just... Yeah. It's felt out, yeah. Bland and outdated. I feel like that book wouldn't get published today. No, I, I, I I thought, I thought the book was stupid back then, and I still (laughs) think it's stupid now. And I, and I, I, I think it's important to understand. Like, I didn't go into this knowing it had a forty-two percent on Rotten Tomatoes. I didn't look. I, I didn't look at a book synopsis to be like, I need to remember how this book works. I tried to go in as fresh as possible. I was like, I don't, I don't want to go in knowing people on the internet think it's dumb. I want to try to approach it straight up. And I figured it, at the very least, like my um, critic critic versus argument, uh, critic versus our audience argument a few weeks back, I'm a big believer in the idea that like critics and audiences scores on Rotten or in general are kind of like a seesaw, right? When the critics think it's bad, the audience thinks it's good. When the audience thinks it's bad, the critics think it's good. This one wasn't even that way. It got a 42 on Rotten Tomatoes from the critics. Audiences gave it a 36. General audiences liked it less than the critics. Like that's saying something. Right. That's, that's saying a lot. Being a, a family film for Disney for Disney kids. Um, so yeah. So as far as the book goes, like I, I I don't think it's that incredible of a story. And despite her best efforts, Ava DuVernay did not turn it around. So. That's a wrinkle in time, I guess. Um, I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> yeah, was, oh, okay. Do I, yeah. that, that's what I was. That's what I was going to ask. Um, no, I wouldn't. If it's on Netflix, don't waste your time. Like it's. Oh, that's and it's bad. A, uh, yeah, unless you're a big fan of the movie, like otherwise, skip it. It is, it is bland. It's unassuming. Uh, to be okay. To be fair, really quick. Um, there is there is some emotional depth to it. There are a couple tear-jerking moments. And and the, like I said, the performances are pretty good. So I, I, I guess I shouldn't say don't waste your time. I, I should say approach with caution. Uh, if you are looking for something light and fun that you can watch with your parents or like your your niece or nephew, sure. But like don't don't go out of your way. Don't seek out a wrinkle in time. It, it is it is it is forgettable. It is less than the sum of its parts. See, so you, you know it's real bad when you recommend that people skip it on Netflix. Yeah, when it's when it's free and you're like, don't don't bother. Totally. I mean, I yeah, I I, I and and I, I told Christine when we walked out of it, I'm like, I there's parts I liked. There 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 are like there there's little parts in there that are good. It's it's got a lot of heart. It really does. It, it's very ambitious, but like it just doesn't it doesn't come together to put together like a complete package. It's just lacking. Um, so yeah, my God, that was way too long of a rant. Um, so yeah, we should move on from a wrinkle in time, I guess. <laughs> Next crappy movie that comes up, Andy's on the choppy block, chopping block. But until then, uh, we should talk about thoroughbreds. But first, we need to get on to the Death of Cinema segment, which this week isn't the Death of Cinema. Uh, surprise, if you didn't read the description, we're talking about um, the trailer park. <laughs> What are we talking about first here? All right, so the, the first one is A Quiet Place. Which is a new horror movie coming out in the next few weeks. Uh, this is John Krasinski's uh, di- directorial debut. Um, John Krasinski, of course, famous from The Office, um, he played Jim and he's been in some films and again, this is his directorial debut. And all we know from the trailer is that there's some sort of post 
apocalyptic situation and this family he's living out in like the woods this is starting to sound like it comes at night uh, but he's hey, li- a little bit yeah he's living out in the woods uh in this cabin with his family and the only thing is like they cannot make any sound because there's something out there some monster or something that if he, if it hears you it, it will hunt you and come after you so right. when so when they're in their house they they all use sign language they everything is soft everything has a rug uh and there's there's something to do with like this sand or like salt stuff that's on the ground and they like it's all over around the house there's certain trails and i, I maybe it hides their footsteps or it keeps things more quiet um but it looks it looks really scary it looks um yeah it just has a, a lot of good feel emily blunt is in it as well love her um, so that comes out in a, in a few weeks. It just it looks really scary, and I'm looking forward to it. Thoughts? Yeah, A Quiet Place is one of those movies that looks looks to potentially be really cool, but could also be really lame. Like you, you're aiming for a real small window of awesome in there because you've got to balance filmmaking uh, and and doing something I don't want to say new, but different in that you're using sound as a medium without being too heavy on the jump scares, which I'm sure there's a handful in this movie, or too light on tension, while also kind of balancing a good story. Because you got to be able to tell a story without sound. Um, and I'm not sure how exactly that's going to happen. I think there's some parts where they can talk, because there's a, there's a couple bits in the trailer. Sh- shape of water. Shape of right. water. <laughs> shape of water, yes. Uh, there's <laughs> There's got to be some parts where uh you can i don't know yeah you've got to be able to suss out exposition and be able to tell a unique story that keeps tension high because when you don't have sound that implies high tension um so i don't know it's certainly quite the directorial debut i think john is assisted by using his wife emily blunt right are they married or are they just a couple i don't either know. way They've been in a relationship for a really long time, so it should be pretty easy to get a good performance out of her, right? Because you know each other so well. You've got intimate connections like Darren Aronofsky and uh, Jennifer Jason, Jen- Jennifer Lawrence in <laughs> Mother. Um, so I don't think anybody gets that joke. <laughs> it's still, it's noted. still, it's still funny. I'm gonna keep. Oh, saying. it's funny. I just don't think anybody gets why we do it. It's because there's an exclamation point at the end of the title. Um, so I don't know. I, I hope it's good. It'll either be good or it will slip into obscurity and nobody will care. Um, so. You know, hopes up on something good. It reminds me of yeah, like the Cloverfield Paradox, or it comes at night. Um, or the Cloverfield Paradox. Um, twenty one Cloverfield Lane. And ten. Yeah. Ten Cloverfield Lane. Twenty one. Where did that come from? And uh, it comes at night. So I'm 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 hoping it's something awesome. But yeah, our next trailer we should talk about is Sorry to Bother You. Let me give you a tip. You want to make some money here? Use your white voice. My white voice? I'm not talking about Will Smith's wife. Like this young blood. Hey, Mr. Kramer. This is Langston from Regal View. And this one's new. This came out like yesterday, I think. Um, Sorry to Bother You appears to be. This came out at South by Southwest. Uh, a black comedy about a, a, a black man who's struggling to get by and takes a job at a call center where he uses his, quote, white voice um, to who uh, become successful in calling people. That's the movie. Um, and I would presume he kind of struggles with that. Which, he, d- which looks, he does. like Right. <laughs> which, which, as far as I can tell, based on my very brief experience, his white man voice is, is voiced by David Cross, of all people. So hopefully that'll be... <laughs> <laughs> just laughing, just thinking about it. So that should be okay. Uh, what what about this looks particularly engaging? Because it's picking up a lot of steam on the internet. Why, why do you think people want to see this movie? Um, well, you automatically have like these, uh, you know, it brings up some hard racial questions. And, you know, that is a, a kind of a joke within minority communities. Oh, it's like, oh, when I'm at the interview, I use my white voice. Or when I'm on the phone for this, I use my white voice. I get treated better. I get treated differently. So it's... It's another way, kind of like Get Out, it's another way of talking about racial issues, but in a very entertaining way. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and it's a period piece, looks like it takes place in like the 70s, early 80s, somewhere around there, you know, way before the digital age. Yeah. That reminds me, oh my God, I totally forgot about this. A Wrinkle in Time, not a single smartphone, the whole movie. Oh. This, is, this is a movie set in 2018 and not a single high schooler uses a smartphone, not one. Like super realistic. Anyway. Um, 
yeah, I, I think this movie looks really fun. I, I um, and I'll be interested to see if it finds success. Currently, it is on the internet, but this is one of those things. Is like Annihilation or Thoroughbreds or Gringo. Like this is an independent comedy, which almost always doesn't do that great. Like they just don't. Like they, they people see the trailer, go, "Oh man, that looks funny," and they never go see it. Like it's just how it goes. Um, yeah. So I'll be interested to see if this one picks any steam, picks up any steam. I hope it does. Movies like that um, need to get more traction because. There's some of the most original work. Uh, you want to take this next one? Yes. Uh, so the, and the other trailer that we saw recently is called Prospect. More like prospecting. He's indeed an obscure craft. An art form worthy of the highest order of review. Uh, which stars Pedro Pascal as some sort of astro prospector it looks like there's him and a team of people on a foreign planet or asteroid or something mining materials but it 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 looks like space horror because it looks like the kind of thing where the crew breaks down and it, it just has all this great imagery like the it looks fantastic like the costumes and the uh you know the suits are real, kind of intimidating, and it it reminds me of the of that stupid thing in Alien Covenant, where like they they you reach you land on a foreign planet, and the first thing everyone does is take off their helmet, yeah. and that's what I kind of liked about this trailer is that they're clearly in some sort of toxic environment because everyone has a helmet on, and that and their helmets are all very different, um, kind of menacing, but you can tell things go wrong. There's lots of violence. Um, this is based on a short film that came out a few years ago. Something like that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it really grabbed me. Good sci-fi. Bold sci-fi. Yeah, I, I really do like the look of it. I think in an environment like that, and It Comes at Night kind of had this, um, but not quite to the level I think Prospect does. There's really an element of like claustrophobia that can be added to everything when you're constantly, you have to be in, in kind suit. of your own environment of a suit or yeah, some kind of safe place. Um, it really does add an element. And and. One of the things that comes at night did really early on had a cool trick, right? Right when they are introducing the characters, there's a, there's a scene at the very beginning where they're burning something, a body specifically, and you can't really see through anybody's gas mask because the flames are so bright off the reflection of their like eye lens mat part of their mask. You can't really see their eyes, and like this movie has a lot of that. Like you can look at somebody's like glass helmet, but like you can't really see their face; it's obscured, and like it's a really cool effect on a dark and, and scary planet um, to kind of um, obscure intention that way in a claustrophobic setting. So, yeah, I really like the look of it. I, I've been interested by things like uh, other independent sci-fi. I just said I played Runner 2049 or Annihilation. This one catches my interest just as much, so I'll be keeping an eye out for it. It also has this, um, this great voiceover by, I don't know who the actor is, but it's just it's very menacing, and it's almost... You get the sense of like what we're doing is almost like this religious right. Like we're doing incredible, important work. Like this isn't like alien space truckers. You know, this is like we are we are divine people who have gotten the opportunity to do this job. Right. the The trailer certainly leaves a lot up to interpretation. It's like just under a minute. So there's really not a whole lot to it. Um, definitely check it out if you haven't seen it. I, I think it's worth your time. The last trailer we're going to talk about, and I talked, about, I barely talked about this last week, and I really want to talk about it more, is uh, I Can Only Imagine. I have some stuff I need to sort out, and I deal with it the only way I know how, and that's to write a song. Which is a, I guess it's safe to say it's a religiously charged film. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I Can Only Imagine is a movie, from what I can tell, about the Christian worship song, I Can Only Imagine. It's about the creation of that song. It seems to center around, I would presume, the writer of the song, I'm pretty sure, is the actor in the movie, right? Mm-hmm. Um, either that or it's just some no-name schlub who <laughs> they, they got off the street uh, to, to work alongside Dennis Quaid, who's also in this movie. Uh, and it's his kind of personal story to um, write this song and, and go to music school. And, and despite his dad who said, you'll never be anything kid, uh, get out there and become something and write. I can only imagine and, and use the power of God to turn his life around. And all I could think when I saw this trailer is like, wow, somebody is making money off that. Like where, where does this go ahead? Well, for, for one thing, when it it almost looked like a real movie (laughs) for the first, like 
20, 30 seconds. Yeah, um, for a minute. Uh, and, but then I start to f- feel like, oh, I'm, they're telling the entire story. And it and it's incredibly cliche. It's like the struggling musician, the abusive father, the fame, the fortune. Uh, you know the right. Mom the, moved away, and the truck broke down. And how are we going to get past this? And yeah, yeah. And they seem in all these movies, they seem to find like the most average looking guy, like slightly overweight. Like it. I don't know if that's a, an on purpose. Like, oh, well, we don't want to be like Hollywood, and where you know they only use the most beautiful people. We want to find. The most average dude. Yeah, to just the, this the, guy. the most normal schlub you've ever seen in your life. And I, I don't, I don't. I, like I said, I'm pretty sure that's just the guy who wrote the song. Like honestly, which is absurd. Um, maybe I'm wrong, but I, I don't. Here, here's the thing. Let me. I don't want to get too idealistic here, but if you've got people who who pay the price of admission to go see this movie, right? That mo- that money goes to a studio somewhere that produced all this. They have to pay to make this movie. That money goes to pay that off, right? But somebody goes and sees this movie and they think, man, that was really great. Next time they're standing in church singing this along with the rest of the choir, are they going to be thinking about the glory of God? Or are you thinking about a movie you saw? And if the answer is the movie... Maybe you made it for the wrong reason. Like, maybe you made it to make money and not for any kind of glorification of a deity. Am I wrong? I, I It just seems a little like, what is this for exactly? Is this, to, is this to get people in church seats or is this to make a buck? And, like, it kind of feels like it's to make a buck. And it's, if it is, <laughs> it's completely the wrong reason to make a movie about a song about uh, God. Am I, mean, I right? I think it's a little, a little of both. You know, there's, uh, there's money in religion. Yeah, uh, it reminds me of uh, a film from a couple of years ago called Hillsong, which was about a, a group I, I think from Australia who was also like a Christian group and who like m- became big in Christian mu- music circles. Um, and I guess maybe that that was successful, and that's why they're like, like, well, hey, what's another popular song? Right. That, uh, but it's not like you know there was um, there was a song several years ago with Brian Cox uh, called Amazing Grace, and it was about. Yeah. The, that song and it has a very interesting backstory because it actually has its roots in this uh preacher who was a former uh captain of a slave ship and there's like actual interesting history and like he eventually thought turned away from the slave trade thought it was really wrong and that's how he uh you know came to write the song like that's interesting that's an interesting story of and that's of a very well-known song right you know i can only imagine like no, it, like his struggle is not that. Oh, like, okay, this looks like a lifetime movie. <laughs> yeah, um, which is exactly what this looks like. I was wrong, by the way. I looked it up. Uh, the movie is about the lead singer of Mercy Me, who wrote the song, and the actor in it is not him. It is an actor with one credit on IMDb that is this movie. So I'm sure <laughs> it's going to be a hit. Um, not to not to be too pessimistic. I don't know. I just like I, I I watch this and I'm like, this seems like the most just expository cinema that exists just to make money off of something that's in no way related to any kind of good story. It's what existing property can we take that's cheap and 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 buy the film rights to it and make a movie out of it. I got it. This this song that's popular at churches nationwide. Perfect. Think how many people will get to come in and watch it. And it's like, what a terrible way to use a brilliant medium like film. You know. You could go see something original like Prospect or Thoroughbreds or any A Wrinkle in Time, which is based on a book. But honestly, it's I think it would be better than this. And instead, it's like let's just let's put some schlock together and throw it in theaters, and people can go see it. And maybe I'm wrong. Like, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this movie will be great. But like I, I no, it, looking, no, no. At, looking at what I know, it looks rough. Not only does it look, I mean, really terrible and generic. I just. Even if you you're really interested in the song and and in Christian music, it still doesn't look interesting. Like I still wouldn't want to go see it if I was like a big Christian music buff or really into this band. Like, yeah, okay. okay. It it just looks bad all around. So I think that just about wraps up the trailer park. We'll be keeping a close eye on. I can only imagine. Um, God, God forbid we cover it on this show again. <laughs> if I have to go see that movie, man, it's going to be worse than A Wrinkle in Time. But uh, on to our next film, I suppose, our last film of the show. Uh, Andy, uh, please, you, you do the honors. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to be reviewing Thoroughbreds. Holy. <clears throat> 
Uh, Amanda, this is my stepdad, Mark. How long are you here, Amanda? My mom's gonna pick me up around midnight. Midnight's late for us. I'll call your mom. She can come pick you up now. She's busy. Doing what? Chemotherapy. Which is the new uh, film by Corey Finley, directed by Corey Finley, um, by A24 Studios. And this film stars Anton Yelchin, the late Anton Yelchin, who was uh, who died tragically uh, last year. Um, Anya Taylor-Joy and Olivia Cook. We last saw Anya Taylor-Joy in Split, the M. Night Shyamalan movie, and before that, The Witch. So she's going to have a really great career. She's a really fine uh, young actress. And anyways, so they play these two high school girls who are incredibly wealthy. You know, they live on an estate. They have servants. They have people that cut the lawn. The, the estate is on lakefront property. They go to expensive boarding schools. And these two girls, uh, Lily and Amanda, uh, Anya plays Lily. Uh, they're incredibly smart, incredibly well-spoken. They're almost too smart for their own good. It's the kind of thing where they're actually bored in school because they're they're too smart for the, the speed at which the classes are moving. And that actually gets them into a lot of trouble. Um, they, initially, when we meet them, they have a very strained relationship. Uh, they're, they're first just kind of hanging out at Lily's house or her mansion. And they're studying. And we, we learn really early that um, Lily's being paid to hang out with Amanda. Because Amanda's kind of weird and creepy. And there was also an incident uh, that kind of freaks everyone out. And so... The only way to get her a friend is to to pay for it. But they eventually blossom into like a real friendship because they can see through each other. They, they're they both very psychoanalytic and they can see right through each other's motivations and things. Um, the writing in this film is really sharp, uh, by the way. Um, so anyways, what eventually happens is through their conversations, they eventually decide, you know, our lives would be a little bit better if certain people kind of weren't around anymore. And they begin to hypothetically say, well, you know, if you were going to murder someone, like, how, how would you do it? And these hypothetical situations turn into not quite so hypothetical uh, situations. And that's the setup uh, for the movie. And, man, I really enjoyed this. <laughs> this it, it, it was so good. I, I Like I said, really great characters really sharp dialogue um and there's a lot of it between the two um and a lot of close-ups like right on people's faces as they talk to each other and and you know emote and all these things um anton yelchin plays a drug dealer in the film that gets wrapped up in their kind of antics uh, kind of against his will he's one of these like not real successful drug dealers um and he plays, he's polar opposite of them in almost every way. Despite being a drug dealer and being and having a criminal record, uh, you know, he's poor. He lives with his father. They're very rich and wealthy. But they also kind of are completely amoral, and they don't really have feelings. Um, Amanda, played by Olivia Cook, says often, like, she, she doesn't feel anything. She's like, I don't feel hate or love or joy or grief. You know, I'm just blank. Um, and Anton Yelchin is, uh, he does have a moral compass. He does have a moral code, a line he will not cross. And that it's, it's an interesting contrast to their characters because they're, they're the opposite. They'll do whatever they want to, to kind of get their way or get ahead or, or whatever. Um, but man, it, it's so well-written really sharp characters and it's short. It's only 90 minutes. So it's, it's not, doesn't go over too long. Um, man, yeah, it was really great. So I wanted to ask about, yeah, the performances primarily because that really does look like what would hold down writing like this. Watching the trailer, it, yeah, you're you're exactly you're exactly right. It just looks real sharp. It just looks like a sharp movie. It looks like it's written uh, not only plot wise well, but it also looks like it has really sharp dialogue. And I wanted to ask about how these characters deliver that. I know Anton Yelchin's pretty good. I know and uh, on. Anya, I want to say Anna. Anya Taylor-Joy is really good. Olivia Cook, though. I don't know if I've seen anything from her. And she's supposed to be this very unfeeling character. How How is she? So she's almost sharper than Anya Taylor-Joy's character. Like like I said, she um, they both speak with like a graduate school level vocabulary. And it's the kind of thing where, I mean, she can talk herself out of anything. Like she can like run circles around the adults that, she, that she's around. Like they're just, I, I mean, almost like a savant kind of right. level of of intelligence 
Um, Funny, yeah. Uh, it's really great uh, performances, and and their relationship is really emotional, and and um, you can you can kind of tell that they've been friends on and off throughout their their childhood, and this is kind of another time when they're somewhat forced into into friendship uh, again. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I want to talk about is the structure of the film. It's very unique. So we have a four act structure. Oh wow! Which is not what we usually get. Four distinct tra- chapters and uh, epilogue and prologue, or prologue and epilogue. Um, and the reason that's significant is that the score does the same thing. So the score is different in every act, but it, so it starts out very sparse, very, almost like a horror movie. Like you get like sparse drumming and squeaky streams. And in the second act, it becomes more structured. Third act, it's more conventional. And then it kind of gets chaotic. And that's exactly what the story does. So the score follows the exact same structure as the film. And it's also, it's really funny. Like, it's branded as a dark comedy. I didn't think it was, it, I, I felt it was more drama than than comedy. But I definitely, uh, you know, chuckled quite a bit throughout the film as well. You know, it's funny. Uh, Olivia Cook's also going to be in a movie we're going to talk about just in a couple of weeks. Uh, Ready Player One. She's one of the main characters. Oh, see, that always seems to happen. It's like, I'd never heard of Timothy Chalamet. And then all of a sudden, he was in like three of the best pictures of the year. Right. You know, I thought it was weird at the end of uh, Wrinkle in Time, the voice of the It, the kind of the main protagonist, is David Oyelowo. I mean, I'll never get his name yeah, right. that's right. <laughs> uh, who's also in Gringo, which came out just this weekend, which we didn't see, but um, would have rather had I had I could. Uh, what did you think of the... Gosh, you already addressed the runtime, I guess. I don't, I don't know if I have many more questions about this movie. I saw the trailer. I really want to see it. Um, you hit me with an official recommendation? Yeah, I mean, yeah, abs- absolutely. Like I said, really, really well-written characters, really sharp dialogue, um, good, some good laughs, and and they just—it's entertaining watching them kind of talk circles around these people. But at the same time, they're still they're still high schoolers. They're still stunted, kind of emotionally and in some other ways, and they're not completely autonomous as much as they they would like to be. Um, but yeah, but their relationship ends up being really touching. And, uh, oh, I remember the other thing I wanted to say is it would be really easy for this movie to fall into some pitfalls of like, oh, it's so evil being rich or, or the opposite of like, oh, it's so hard being rich. Oh, woe is me with my rich person problems. And it doesn't do that. You could tell this story in different economic brackets and, and it would be equally as effective. There's just kind of different things you can say, um, and I and if there's any commentary on kind of class or wealth, it's it's not that being rich is bad, but it's that being rich is different. You can do th- certain things that you can't do if you're not rich, right. or when, when you are when you are rich. So that I'm glad that it didn't fall into those kinds of pitfalls. Mm. Reminds me a little bit of a, a of um. Oh no, I can't remember. It's Sarah Sh- Sarah Michelle Geller, Ryan Philippi, Cruel Intentions. So it's like that level. Not sorry, not, that, yeah, cruel intentions. I was not expecting a cruel intentions <laughs> drop on this show today. That was a good <laughs> sorry, one. sorry. No, solid. Uh, yeah, hey, nothing wrong. But with but intentions. just that in that, I mean, same thing. In that movie. Those are ex- extremely wealthy, kind of vapid people, and, they, and but these are much more fleshed out characters. Right. I know one of the one of the it wasn't a critique really, but one of the compliments it received was like Heather's and American Psycho thrown together, and that's like exactly what the trailer looks like. I was like, yeah, this looks like. Definitely an element of wealth there, um, and I can appreciate any movie that looks at that through a young, through the eyes of a younger person. I guess so. Yeah, thoroughbreds wor- worth your time, I guess, huh? Definitely. And the, the other thing, it's a weird to portray wealth and it be, and and for a hat to have other people relate to it. And I think this movie does a good job of that. There's there's this particular scene where one of the characters goes to a spa. And it just looks like the most amazing thing ever that you would want to do. But it's the kind of thing where everything in the house is like $10,000. Like that's a $10,000 painting, a $10,000 vase that, you know. Right. It's tough for me to watch a movie like that and not think the characters are overly pretentious. But what, what do you think? Um, I mean, especially in the case of like Olivia Cook's character, she's like, I don't feel anything. Well, that's very convenient. You have everything in your life given to you. But I, I, don't, I don't know. That's, that's, again, a very snap judgment on a movie I haven't seen. Right. Well, well, you know, it's one of those things like you could you could have that issue not being rich, you know. Sure. You, you could be completely kind of devoid of I mean <laughs> right. that's that's essentially depression. 
No, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, you're right. And that's not that's not limited to any particular character. You can be just as cynical looking at somebody like Ray from Star Wars who wants more out of her life. It's like, well, yeah, you live on a planet with nothing. Of course you do. Like, yeah, so it's 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 uh, six dozen in one hand. Six, six in one hand, half dozen in the other, I guess. Yeah. But so, like, yeah. like I said, it avoids the pitfall of being like, oh, woe is me. It's so hard being rich. It definitely doesn't do that. Oh, all right. Thoroughbreds, worth your time, not wrinkle in time don't waste your time on that uh what are we watching next week um so this week we're gonna be watching tomb raider the new remake starring uh alicia vikander and also the last jedi is available to rent on streaming services um i don't know which ones are at the moment but i know that you can stream it starting uh tomorrow you know for some reason the more i think back on it I feel like I'm not going to like Last Jedi as much this time around. I don't know why. I just, I'm thinking about my experience. I'm like, I didn't dislike it before, but now I'm thinking about it. And I'm like, eh, I how many, know. how many times did you see it? Once. Just once. once. Okay. You saw it three times, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, so I'm looking I, forward to it. I think I'll you'll enjoy be, it. Yeah, more. you'll be, you'll be fine. Uh, I guess, yeah, stay tuned to see how I feel about it. And if you have any feedback on how we felt about this week's movies, email us at mail at offscriptfilmreview.com. Please get involved with the show. We'll read your stuff on the air. We swear. We won't even censor it. Okay, we might censor it, but <laughs> don't leave you say anything awful. Um, so, yeah, check that out. Check us out at offscriptfilmreview.com, the beautiful website put together by one Dr. Draper. Totally worth your time. Uh, and rate, leave us a rating or review on iTunes. Um, this show would not be what it is without each and every one of you, and we appreciate you. So thanks for listening, I guess. Andy, any thoughts before I, I wrap up the show? No, this is Off Script, the home of bold cinema. The home of bold cinema. That's right. Yes, I'm, I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Thanks for listening.